There was once a rich man who had land that was incredibly productive. And he thought to himself, since I don't have any more room to store my crops, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down the barns that I have, and I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'm going to store all my goods, all my grains in these massive barns. And then I'm going to live out the rest of my life and take it easy. I'm going to live out my life in comfort and in enjoyment of what I have stored up for myself. But then God says to this man, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This parable is told by Jesus for us in Luke 12. And it really opens our eyes to the reality that what we hope in for this life has the power to either break us or make us in the life to come. If we hope in the wrong things, such as this man did, in his wealth, in his, in his comfort that he had stored up for himself, if we're hoping in that for salvation, there remains no hope for us in the life to come. So it's important for us that we are living our lives then with the right hope in view. Otherwise, we may end up as this rich man did. And so it brings us all to a very important question here this morning. What is it this morning as we think to ourselves, what is it that we are hoping for, for life, for comfort, for joy in life? What is it that we are hoping in for life, joy, and security? And really, what is it then that we are supposed to be hoping in so that we don't end up as this man did? As we come back to Zechariah 12, it's here that God gives us immense pictures of hope for his people to look to and to conduct their lives by. And God gives this hope to his people as the creator and sustainer of the universe in verse 1. He gives us these pictures of his saving acts in the future on that day. And so this phrase, on that day, is repeated over 17 times in the last few chapters of Zechariah. And the Israelites were to base their hope and their lives on this concrete reality of what God was doing for them. So while some of these acts have already happened today, while some of these acts have not yet been completely fulfilled, while some of these are still happening to us as God's people, the people of God, as we see these pictures of hope, are to dwell on them, are to conduct their lives in light of this hope that God gives us. And it will be in this way that we will be saved. So to get concrete then, what saving acts of God are we to find hope in this morning? As we look at our text, we are to find hope in the reality that God is at work in his people's lives, covering their weaknesses, changing their hearts, cleansing them from sin, crushing their idols, and cultivating their faith. You have five C's there that you can work through with me as we go through our text this morning. First, we look then at God covering his people's weaknesses. This brings us to verse two in our text. 
and we find the hope that God will cover his people's weaknesses with strength and security. He secures his people against their enemies. And this is the picture that we see in verses 2 through 5. As we have seen so often these past few weeks, there are God's enemies that are coming against his people. And every time they do, what does God do? He intervenes. He secures his people. And in this rendition of God coming to secure his people, we see that he makes his people like a cup that causes staggering. So we look at this word picture here. God is making their enemies drunk on wine as they attack them. It's as if they're drunk on wine and they're staggering about like drunken fools. And so when they come against Jerusalem, against God's people, they stumble about as foolish people and God's people rest secure. There's another picture then given immediately following this. And it's a picture of God making his people incredibly heavy and weighty, like a large, jagged, heavy stone. And it's in this picture that as God's enemies, again, try to lift up this stone, they're only crushing themselves. They're hurting themselves. And in the words of one, we are given a picture of the enemies of God throwing out their backs before they overthrow God's people because he secures them. And so we rest in this hope as God's people. And then there's a third picture here then too, as God secures his people, as he throws the enemy's horses and riders into a wild panic. As they come to attack God's people, they're thrown into madness. And seeing this scene, it brings our memory back to really one of the great prophets of old, specifically Elisha in 2 Kings 6. And it's here where the Arameans come with a multitude of horses and chariots to to take Elisha alive. But then Elisha prays that God would deliver him and strike these enemies with blindness. And so we see a picture of this happening in the past, happening again for God's people. They can rest secure that God will deliver his people as he's promised to do over and over and over again. And so we can do the same. We can respond knowing that God secures his people by casting all of our cares upon him for he cares for us. He secures us and he makes us his own. So God covers his people's weaknesses with security, but then he also covers their weaknesses with strength. And this is what we see in verses five through nine here this morning. In verse 5, God strengthens the house of Judah with with great strength, power, and confidence in the name of the Lord. And he strengthens them so that like fire that consumes wood ablaze, so they're set ablaze and they conquer all the enemies surrounding Jerusalem. They would conquer through the power of God at work in their lives. The reality that God would strengthen his people in this way becomes all the more evident as we look down to verse 8. For it's here that we find that God would even make the weakest among his people like the mightiest king that they have ever, ever had in their history, King David himself. And so just as David was strengthened by God to defeat a giant, so God's people, though small and weak on their own, would be strengthened like David 
to crush their enemies. They would triumph through God who strengthens them from the weakest of them to the greatest. And then according to verse 7, there would be no more air of superiority among God's people. There would be no more squabbling about which tribe is the greatest. Why? Because it's God at work in each and every one of them to do these great and awesome things. And because he's the one empowering them, delivering them, there will be no more boasting among God's people anymore or partiality. And so as God covers his people with security and strength, so we too as the church here this morning can find the same hope and confidence. And we must. For even as we see the warfare in these, in these verses, this warfare, so there is warfare taking place around God's people each and every day. There is spiritual warfare that the Bible speaks of all the time taking place around us. For even as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And even as 1 Peter 5, 8 warns the church, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And so even as we see the Israelites desperately needed God's protection and security, so we as the church today are not exempt from our desperate need for God's security and protection upon us. For there is spiritual warfare around us that we are so often blind to. But as we look to our God, even as the Israelites were to do, we have the promise that he will sustain us. He will secure his people. We will prevail and we will conquer. For even as Jesus said to Peter, that on this rock he will build his church, and that not even the gates of hell would prevail against her. And more than this, Jesus, as the good shepherd, has promised to lay down his life to ensure our security and our safety. He would lay down his life for his sheep, and no one, absolutely no one, would snatch them from his hands. So even as we see our own weaknesses here this morning, whatever it is that we might be struggling with, our insecurities, our failings, we look to our God in the midst of this to secure us and to strengthen us. And he promises that he will as we look to Jesus. So our text first reveals then that we can find hope in God's covering of our weaknesses. But then we are also to find hope in his changing of our hearts. As we transition to verse 10, it's, it's, it's cryptic and, and it's really sad. Because we move from this, this great victory scene where God's people are being delivered, right? To now really tragedy and, and a sorrowful scene here. As verse 10 tells us, then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. This is like the biggest plot twist of a movie scene you've ever seen. Like, wait, whoa, whoa, what just happened here? They're killing their king now? 
Like that's what just happened. In the midst of this great victory, the people are now mourning. They're mourning because they killed their king. And this is what is meant. If you pierce Israel's king, you pierce God. So as we try to kind of put the pieces together with this plot twist, we're finding out that the king promised back in chapter 9 and the shepherd they betrayed in chapter 11 is now the same king that they pierce and they kill. And so though the people have just won a, a really a great victory against all of their enemies, now the people are simultaneously mourning the loss of the king that they had killed. So it's not as if this king died in battle protecting them as, as the movies often portray. No, that's, that's not it at all. No, instead this king, their king, would die by the hands of his own people. He would die at the hands of the Jews as the ones who pierced him. But God would pour out his spirit here in the text. He would pour out his spirit in grace upon the people. And in the pouring out of this spirit and grace, God would enable his people to see the horrific thing that they've just done. And so they would weep with great weeping once they recognized that they had killed their king. They would weep like a person who lost their only child as if it was their firstborn child of all things. And if you can just imagine with me just for a moment, what would it be like losing your firstborn son or daughter? The pain, the dagger in your heart that she would feel. And yet, this is how it would be for God's people once they've seen what they did to their king. So the mourning of God's people would be greater than that of Hadad Ramon in the, in the plain of Megiddo. And my best guess for what this is in reference to it's in reference to the great battle between Baal and Elijah, the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And they had this battle to see which God was the true God of Israel. And so what did the prophets of Baal do? They, they cut themselves, they gashed themselves, and they weeped and they howled for, the, for their God to act for them. But as we see contrasted here, no longer are they weeping for their false God, Baal, but they're weeping for the one true God, their king. And so their hearts have been softened. Their hearts have been changed. They are mourning for their sins against their God. They mourn as they realize that they pierced God's anointed king. And in this, we see changed hearts. We see repentant hearts. And without coercion or social pressure, their hearts are changed and softened when they see clearly their sins. And this work of God extends then to all the tribes of Israel. I think that's what verses 12 through 14 are telling us. It extends not only to the men, but also the women. It goes throughout the land to every tribe and person. And so what does all of this mean? I think if you were an Israelite during this time, if you put yourself in their shoes, this whole entire scene is incredibly perplexing. Like, how in the world does this, like, all work out? 
But as New Testament believers here this morning, we have a major advantage, don't we? Because we see to the other side God's plan unfold for us. And as we go to the New Testament, this text points us ultimately to what would happen to Jesus Christ our God. For when we see God pierced here, we recognize that it is Jesus, the God-man, pierced for our sins on the cross. We see him pierced in the side and crucified for our sins that held him there. So we recognize then that this text points us to Jesus and him being pierced for all the sins and wrongs that we've ever committed. But then as we see the spirit and grace poured out across their land, they also recognize that they killed their king and they mourn. So even as we turn over to Acts 2, as the apostle Peter proclaims this message, that they killed Jesus by piercing him and crucifying him, how do the people receive this? They receive it by being pierced to their hearts. And recognizing that they pierced Jesus, the Messiah, they themselves are pierced to the heart. And this is done as the Holy Spirit works to convict people of their sin. And as he changes their hearts so that they mourn. They mourn their sins against God. And in seeing this, we recognize the grace, the grace and spirit of God at work, fulfilling Zechariah's picture for us. God is giving people new hearts as they recognize what they did to their king. So the same is true for us here this morning. This morning, if you recognize that it was our sin that pierced Jesus and led him to his death, even as we sung this morning, if we recognize and see that it was our sin that held Jesus to the cross, and you have deep remorse, regret, sorrow over what your sin did to the very Son of God, you are fulfilling this text. For that is God's Spirit at work in your life, cultivating a holy remorse. That is the sign that God has given you a new heart capable of regretting your sin and repenting from it. So God has changed your heart. You can see this truth and accept it. And in recognition of this, we, we have to be all the more dependent then on God's spirit and grace. For it's God's spirit and grace that changes not only our hearts, but the hearts of others around us. And so when we see sin or the sins of others, our first response should not be run over there and just just condemn them, but pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see our sins for all of us. Cultivate a spirit of humility because it's only by God's Spirit that we can truly see sin, detest it, and turn from it. So we must pray. We must pray this for the people that we are seeking to reach in our lives. We must pray this for our children. I don't care how good of a parent you are, you are not the Holy Spirit. Only God's Spirit can convince our children of the truth, of the horrors of our sin, and what it did to Jesus. Jesus. 
So we must pray for our children. We must pray this especially for ourselves. When our hearts start to become hardened towards sin or others around us, we must pray that we take sin seriously through the power of the Holy Spirit in turn. So this morning, if this is perhaps your first time hearing this or the hundredth time, know that God's Spirit works to help us to see sin and we give him praise and thanks and we turn from it in horror. As the people in Acts who are pierced with this truth see what they did, they then ask, what must we do? What must we do seeing that we've crucified the Messiah? And Peter commands them to again turn from their sins, which led to the death of the precious Jesus, and swear allegiance to him all the days of your life. And so the same is true for us here this morning. As we recognize our sins on the regular, we turn from them, we repent of our sins, and again, we pledge allegiance to Jesus. We ask for his help and his spirits working in our own life. And in doing this, there is forgiveness of sins. There is forgiveness of sins to help us all the days of our life with the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what we see as we continue in the text, isn't it? Not only do we have the hope of God changing our hearts, we have the hope of being cleansed from sins. This is shown to us in another glorious picture as we see a fountain open up to cleanse the people from sins and impurities in chapter 13, verse 1. This fountain opens up following the death of the king, and I think these two events are meant to be connected for us, and we're meant to see Jesus again. For as Jesus is pierced in his side, what do we see come from his side? What do the New Testament authors record for us as we think back to Christ's crucifixion? As we read from John's account, as they pierce his side, both blood and water flow out from him. In other words, we could say that as Jesus' side is pierced and opened up, so a fountain opens up. And through this fountain, there is, there's forgiveness of sins and a washing away of impurities. So in this symbolism of a fountain just coming forth to cleanse us from sin and impurity, we see this fountain primarily, I think, in Jesus as that fountain is opened forth from the piercing in his side. And we see that the blood is the atonement for our sins as it satisfies the wrath of God for all the evils we've ever committed. And the water cleanses us from an impure life, from all impurities. And this happens as we trust in Christ's sacrificial death for us. So even as the song, Rock of Ages, puts it, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. So even if we have immeasurable guilt from our sins, no matter what it might be, from recognizing that we killed Jesus to the sins that we still commit today, if we have the sense of immeasurable weight upon us here today, we again look to Jesus as the cure. And he beckons us to come and to find forgiveness in the fountain that washes away our guilt and our sins. 
and he gives us hope to continue again. So perhaps you've never heard this before, what Christ has done for you. If you've never heard what Jesus has done for you, no. He offers you forgiveness. Despite the horrificness of our sins, he offers you forgiveness through faith and repentance in his name. And for us, for us who have already claimed this forgiveness, we continue to claim it each and every day. And we especially claim it when we wrestle with great guilt for our failures and are not measuring up. This fountain exists for you. So come and be washed in it today and find hope. So there's hope then as God covers his people's weaknesses, as he changes their hearts, and as he cleanses them from sin. But then there is also hope as he is at work crushing all the idols in our life. As God continues to save his people by changing their hearts and cleansing them from sin, we really see this cleansing of sin in action as idols are crushed. And this is evidenced as God removes the name of the idols from the land and he just wipes them from existence entirely. That's what we're seeing here. Remembering was often the first step for longing for something and really, really desiring it. And the longer something is remembered and dwelled upon, so feelings and desires for that thing are strengthened and really worship occurs in that way. And so the same is true for us whenever we remember or dwell on something idolatrous, eventually it gets to our hearts. We, we worship it. But here God says that on that day, he will rid these idols from the hearts and minds of his people completely. And so he is at work doing this exact thing in your life today. Though these idols are not completely eliminated or crushed yet, God is presently working to remove every idol in your life so that you might worship him alone with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength as you were created to do. He is at work freeing us from the memory of these false gods which lead to death. And so maybe you're wondering, what is idolatry? I don't think I'm an idolater. Paul makes clear to us what idolatry is in Colossians 3.5. And he calls us to put this into action. God is doing this, so work it out in your life. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So as we see this picture of idols being crushed, and no longer remembered. So he is doing the same for you here this morning through a variety of ways. He's freeing us from the idols of immorality, impurity, evil desires, materialism and greed, self-worship, false doctrines and teachings, and so many more. And as he changes our hearts, and as he cleanses us from our sins, this is part of that work. So that we might cling to our true source of life, Jesus for life and peace. And so though all the idols in our life are not yet crushed perfectly, God will one day do this fully and completely. And we will long for God alone and serve him with our whole hearts. And so the calling for us here this morning then is to freely give up these idols that God is crushing. 
Let us quit our love affair with the idols so that God doesn't smash the idols in our heart where it will really hurt. But let us instead cast them out and have them crushed out there instead. Now in in this picture of being freed from these idols, we also see a picture of being freed from the false prophets who worship these idols too, right? So great in this picture, so great is the zeal of God's people for God himself that not even family connections will stand in the way of his people worshiping him alone. This is how it will be one day. Instead, the parents of children who stand opposed to God will choose God over their son or daughter. They will choose obedience to the old covenant law to God over and against their child if they go astray and start worshiping false idols and false gods. And so there's a picture here of of extreme zeal on the part of God's people that will lead them to have severe divisions in their family. If they don't follow the one true God of Israel, there will be divisions. And so great will the zeal of God's people be for God that the false prophets and teachers of the land will be greatly ashamed. No longer will these false prophets live openly proclaiming their false teachings, but instead they will live with their tail between their legs. And when they're asked about the scars that they have on their bodies, which likely comes from mutilating their flesh in worship to false gods, they're going to lie about it. They're going to cower in shame because of how zealous God's people are for him. And so as we contemplate this picture here, being freed from idols, false prophets, how, what in the world do we do with this as the church today, right? I mean, that has to be a thought going through your head. Are we supposed to have such zeal for God that we go around killing or even our sons and daughters if they worship false gods or idols? Is that what we're supposed to do? No, I, I don't think that's the case at all, to be clear with you this morning. Instead, as we see this picture of zeal that God's people would have for God, I think we are meant to see Jesus clearly here and his calling to his disciples. I think it's really meant to point us to Jesus who spoke similar words as this in Matthew 10, 35 through 37. What does he say here? He says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves a son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so what's the point of what Jesus is saying here? I think he's saying, is he really saying you must hate your father and mother to be my disciple? No, he's not saying that. Instead, he's making the point that he demands the type of allegiance that supersedes all other relationships. He demands the type of loyalty that goes above even family lines. And this is exactly what we see in Zechariah 13. I think we see the same picture, one and the same, that Jesus demands supreme worship above anyone or anything. And if we're struggling this morning, even asking the question, how can Jesus ask that of me? Like, that's, that seems extreme. Like, really? You want me to love you more than my own blood and flesh? 
And if we're struggling with that, with Jesus' calling to his people, we have to remember once more what it is that Christ did for us. For if we understand truly all that Jesus did for us on the cross, that he bore the hell that we deserve for all eternity, that he suffered a horrific death that we should have died, that he provides forgiveness for all of the evils that we've ever committed in our life, past, present, and future, if we begin to understand just a slight measure of what Jesus has done for us, then this is the only reasonable response for God's people. To worship him with hearts filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. This is not a heavy burden. This is a freeing liberation. For in living for Jesus, with our love set on him above everything, is the path to true life, true fulfillment, and true joy. To live for the one who gave up everything for you and for me. So in light of Christ's sacrifice for us, we gladly, we ought to gladly sacrifice all idols into the fires of destruction. We ought to smash them ourselves to pieces. Anything that would get in the way of our love for God, our love for Jesus, we voluntarily crush them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the words of Paul then, we strive in views of these immeasurable mercies to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing and acceptable to him. For this is our true worship. So this is our calling to each and every one of us here this morning. To love Jesus and to help one another fix our eyes upon him. As we come then to the, the final verses of this passage, we then see that God is at work giving us hope by cultivating our faith. As we've seen the pattern again and again in Zechariah, there's triumphant victory, and then what happens? There's disaster. Triumphant victory, then disaster. And once more, after this good news, we again see really bad news, disaster as the good shepherd here in verse 7 is struck and killed. And as we go to Jesus in the New Testament, he would point to this passage, these verses, right before he's betrayed by Judas, and he would say, this is about me. I'm about to be struck, and I will fall, I will die, and the sheep will be scattered. And just as he said, so Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of the Romans by Judas, and so his sheep would scatter across the globe. But as we continue to see what happens even after the death and ascension of Jesus into heaven, we see that his sheep would be persecuted greatly. And that a great deal of death would happen to his people in the early stages of the church. As God's people followed in the footsteps of Jesus, so they too would be crucified and put to death. And the book of Acts with Saul's persecution of the church shows this, along with much church history. And so I think that's what's being pictured for us here. Even as two-thirds are, are wiped out and one-third are put through the fire. But in spite of all this persecution, in spite of all this death and calamity, God will still turn these evil acts around for good. 
he will turn around this evil for good, even as he did with his own very son, even with the death of his son. God will turn these tribulations and these persecutions into an opportunity to strengthen the faith of his people and so show his immeasurable worth, supremacy, and goodness above all things. That Jesus isn't only worth living for, but also dying for as well. And so even as Peter, I think, reflects on this passage here, he says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So even as we see the people of God in this picture being put through the fire, so we see ourselves as we go through tribulations, trials, persecutions, that God's people's faith is being refined through it. And so I don't know what you may be going through today, but if you are going through severe trials, severe pains, God is working out your faith. He is strengthening it. And he's doing this so that in the end, as our faith is tested as gold, we would reach the ultimate goal of our existence. And that is that God would truly be our God. That God would be our God and that we would be his people. So as he cultivates our faith, as he puts us through the fires, we reach the climax of what we've been waiting for all our lives. And that is when we will call on the name of the Lord in that final day. And he will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. So I hope this morning that we all long to both say these words and hear them from our master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we ask that you would help us to live out our days with this certain hope. Help us to base our hope not in the world, not in wealth, not in riches, not in comfort, not in entertainment, not in the approval of man, not in our job, not in our families. But help us above all, Lord, to place our hope in the salvation that you provide in Jesus Christ. Help us to live out this hope boldly and confidently as your people, to cling to it, for your word never fails, and you never go back on your promises. So help us as your people again to, to look to the glories of Christ and all that is won for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.